welcome and thanks for listening. I'm Stacey Randall-Shaheen. And I'm Diane Amelia-Reed. Together, we will examine essential questions so you can cultivate a deeper connection to your true identity and help others do the same. This is personal power for the common good. Change your life, change the world. Welcome to Personal Power for the Common Good, the podcast where we explore the bonuses and the barriers that come with each stage of human development. We find ways to sidestep those barriers on our way to authenticity and learn how to help others do the same. And by doing so, you can help to change the whole world for the better, one person, one encounter at a time. I'm Stacey Randall Shaheen, an adult educator and human rights advocate. I'm here with my good friend, colleague, and coach, Diane Amelia-Reed. Hi, I'm Diane Amelia-Reed, a college and career advisor, social justice advocate, and personal transformation coach. Stacy and I are so happy to have you with us. Wicked excited to have our guest today, who is an author, public figure, speaker, and coach. And as such, he continues to broaden the power of his message and influence by writing, directing, and producing digital media content through his aptly named company, Ghetto to Greatness Media, GTG Consulting. Carlos Ricard was born in Caguas, Puerto Rico. Did I, did I totally butcher that, Carlos? A little bit, but it's fine. No, tell me how to say it, please. Caguas. Caguas, Puerto Rico, where he lived until the age of three when he migrated to the U.S., he spent most of his young life growing up in the streets of New England, where his journey was filled with ups, downs, and some pretty sharp and painful turns. For a period, however, Carlos and his family were guests at Wellspring House in Gloucester, Massachusetts. It's a shelter for families without housing. Now, during their six-month stay at Wellspring, Carlos met and was lovingly guided by two of Wellspring's seven founders, Nancy Schwoyer and Rosemary Houghton. The depth of their kindness and the connection it created stayed with Carlos and became his touchstone in difficult times. Stacy and I interviewed Nancy and Rosemary for a very special upcoming episode of Personal Power for the Common Good. And in that conversation, they spoke through tears, literally tears of joy, as they told of a recent reunion with Carlos. In Carlos's new book, 2021, The Resurrection Plant, Your Pain is Your Path to Greatness. And the work related to this insightful and useful content will be the focus of our conversation today. In the introduction to Carlos's book, his long-ago advocate, Nancy Schwoyer, writes, He shows the transformative power of good memories, acts of kindness, words of respect and acceptance, even when life is filled with demons of abuse, mistakes, and rejection. The resurrection plant deserves a place on high school and college English reading lists, along with I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and Catcher in the Rye. Love that phrase, the transformative power of good memories. Mm-hmm. So true. So if you, like Carlos Ricard and many others, including Diana Millian ourselves, you know, our paths are riddled with trauma to different degrees, and you may have learned to tough it out and to pretend you have it all together. The resurrection plant tells of one man's mission to see clearly the truth about his troubled past and also to reach the source of his self-destructive behaviors. He's identified eight proven steps that have helped others resurrect from the sufferings of their past 
and build a new foundation towards their greatness. And because we can't possibly cover every step of the plan in the limited time we have with Carlos, Diane, Amelia, and I have targeted four of the steps for this discussion. Creating a new foundation for your future, getting rid of those toxic patterns of living, the fundamental life boundaries, figuring out what they are and then making them happen, and then lastly, call upon your gifts. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your incredible story, Carlos. Before we dive into some of the steps of the resurrection plan, would you please explain the three components of someone's journey toward their greatness that you describe as pain, path, and promise? What are the components of these three words that you believe are critical to channel personal pain into greatness? Well, ladies, thank you very much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I would have never imagined that 22 years later, after being homeless, I'd be in a podcast with (laughs) someone who worked there and then someone who lives in Gloucester and is not only from a place that changed my life, but is continuing together trying to help other people change their life. So again, thank you very much. Truly appreciated. Well, the pain path promise, it's pretty much the what I broke down to try to help I don't know, any, anybody from a kid in the hood to a kid in the burbs, try to break out of the perpetual cycle of toxicity that they've been you know, stuck in, that they keep repeating. The three, or to me, the components, words that, that I use, the pain, the path, and the promise has a lot to do with all of our struggles. It pretty much encapsulates everything that has created us. I identify the past as pretty much the pain. The past is what builds us into who we are, but the past is obviously the pain that created the person that we are today. Sadly, when the pain from our past has a grip on the problems in our present, our perception to avoid pain altogether becomes the anchor that many of us shackle our untapped potential and unfulfilled dreams to. Considering that 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 is the case, how exactly does the resurrection plan that you outlined in your book, how do, how do our listeners begin to take the eight steps in their own lives? That's where you go into the path, right? The path, it's how the path towards your greatness looks like. Everyone knows you can't just click your heels together three times and expect to wake up happy, healed, and whole. That's just not how it works, naturally. You need to know the path to get there. Experience what you've been avoiding, embracing both the pain and pleasure of it, and then redefine the way you interpret your reason for having done it. The eight steps are pretty simple. I mean, I've pretty much throughout the book, I take my life's traumas, I reveal how they nearly brought me to the verge of suicide. Then I break them down in a story of how I slowly wage war against my own demons. In the book, there's an excerpt that I use. I used to, and I'm reading from the book here, okay? So this is a quote. I used to tell myself when I was about to do something stupid or I had told myself I wouldn't do again, that I'd change things the next day. There's always tomorrow, I think. This one last time won't kill me and tomorrow I'll start fresh. Tomorrow, I'll stop hanging out with the wrong crowd, say no to my friends, obey the law, pay my court fines, do my community service, stop lying to myself and put my life in order. Well, Looking down the long row of cells that would become my new home, 
it didn't feel like there was a tomorrow anymore. Tomorrow, I'd wake up in the same 8 by 12 room with the same cold steel toilet and the same stranger for a cellmate. We'd do the same things we did today and the day before. I had become a statistic. The immigrant, single-parent, street-raised, impoverished, gang-banging, drug-dealing, dope-smoking criminal that Miss DeVille had warned I would become. See, this path of getting there and me creating these steps was a direct result of my entire life. The hard lessons, going through them, hitting the wall, hitting the wall, hitting the wall, and then finally realizing I can probably go over it. I can probably dig a hole under it. I can try to find where this wall ends and go around it. Why do I have to keep hitting the wall? Problem is, I kept hitting the wall because I wanted to take the path of least resistance. I did not want to take the road less traveled. So when I went down that path, I realized, wait a minute, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And then I got over it and learned from it. This is where I go into the promise, right? The eight steps, which create, create that pain path promise. The reward of your resurrection, hence why I called the book The Resurrection Plant. Against the odds, you confronted, you battled, you transformed, and you triumphed, and then conquered what was once unimaginable. You've not only transformed your entire life, but you've also recreated an entirely new set of principles and code of ethics to guide you towards your future. As you guys probably already know, as I sent to you, I have these principles, right? This persistence, patience, resilience, consistency, courage, and hope. That's where these steps come from. Literally from step one, which envision a future worth living for, that's it. It's the simplest part. Life sucks for you. It's the worst you could ever imagine. And you can't get out of this hole because you're depressed and you're literally thinking thoughts you never thought you'd imagine. Stop. Time out. Let's think about it. What is this future that you wish you had? What, what does it look like? Start thinking we just about started it. Doing, um, we just started doing vision boards with our students this year to try to yeah. get that be really concrete for them. It's, you know, it's have them identify it. huge, huge, because life doesn't allow us the time to think about the good stuff most of the time. We're constantly in reactive mode. So right. you give a vision board, you get to reflect and respond to these visions, put them up. That's huge. Once you start thinking these things, I get neural pathways. This process of thinking differently creates a new pathway for your brain to unconsciously think. So you envision that. Fantastic. Now you have some sort of ability to envision something better than this hell that you're living. What's the next thing? Connect to a source of hope. The reason why a source of hope is huge is because you have a vision, but like any other vision, it seems astronomically huge. It's like, I'll never, it's a dream. It's not possible. Well, how do I make this possible? How do I start, right? I have to hold on to hope and believe that it's actually going to happen. When I was in my down dumps and I wanted to kill myself at age 15, I, um, I had hope. Something told me, you're young. This can't last forever. Hold on to it. So you have the vision. Great. You have something holding you on when things get down in dumps and this vision becomes almost impossible, keeps you going. Now let's figure out how we're going to get that done. And as I state within 72 hours of my plan, uh, that third part, which I create as a cycle, um, which is envision the future, connect to hope and strategize. You repeat that process until you start believing in the process, until the things that you really wanted, as simple as waking up and making my bed. When that becomes a habit, that 
process created that habit. That habit creates a good routine. A good routine creates a good process, a good mental thought, and so on and so forth. Easy part. You mentioned being in that really dark place and you kind of had your own resurrection. And I wanted to just take a second to talk about the title of the book, The Resurrection Plant. Could you talk about the, that plant, which I, I find so fascinating? Yes. You know, in the process of writing this book, trust me when I tell you I struggled with calling it the resurrection plant. As much of an affinity as I had for this plant, no one in their mother knew what the heck it was. Not a soul. And then I'm going to call this book that. And my, the reason I call the resurrection plant is very simple. This plant is from the Sahara Desert and very waterless, very hot places, right? And the resurrection plant, if you just give me one quick second here, it's literally a form of tumbleweed. It's like the old Western tumbleweeds. It looks just like it pretty much, dried up ball of sticks. But the magic behind the plant is what it's capable of withstanding to the point where not even scientists understand how it does it. This plant sheds literally 95% of its water intake. What it does is it gets into a stress mode in the sense of like anything else to protect itself, to self-preserve itself. So this plant sheds 95% of its water. Its molecular composition slows down. It dries up into a ball and literally goes wherever the wind blows it. It could be in the middle of the desert years without catching water. And how is that possible? Because it does eventually rain in the desert. But here's the deal. It's being drifted by the wind. It could literally be tormentous downpours, you know, three yards away and never get touched by water because the wind's blowing it a certain way. So it has to just be a thing of chance. Hence why I call it the hope. The water is the hope. It holds on to hope. And I relate it a lot to my life because I've had to shed 95% of who I thought I was, what I thought I was made of, what society suggested I'd become what the statistics eventually thought I would become, everything about me, and then deal with the pain, with that intolerable environment, the conditions that the environment creates inside of a human being. That was me. Um, this plan is a direct result of what the environment created. It has to survive, and then it doesn't get water. So it has to shed everything it thinks it is in order to survive. But the beauty of the plant is that it doesn't have an expiration date. Scientists to this day have no clue if it lives 50, 100, 150, 200 years old. It doesn't matter. But when it does hit a puddle of water, when it does have rain, that's when the beauty of the plant is just, again, everybody I show the, the a little video clip BBC did of it uh, are blow, blown away. Um, within a 24, even less, but 24 to 48 hour span, the plant literally starts blooming. It turns from a dried ball of twigs into a flourishing fern, green. And as it's opening up, its pods, because it's asexual, its pods hold of seeds start getting broken by the actual raindrops. And as these, these pods break, they're now cementing inside the desert. And then they're creating new life within themselves. So this plant that everybody considers as a dead ball of twigs is actually, like I say in the book, a mother or father waiting to give new life to the world, which is something that I, that I hold really close to me because I'm a father now. And I realize what that 
sacrifice and the pain and the thoughts of suicide and the beatings from police and the racism and the stereotype and, and, and the not fitting in and all these things, why I tolerated it and what was it for and, 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 and how I held on, what these kids are that. These kids gave me um, an understanding. And so when I had my first son, six months after his birth, I talked to my fiance and I said, you know what? I, I have to write this. I have to write a book. I have to write a book. If it's the last thing I do, just for my son's sake, that if I would die tomorrow, my son knows this was my dad. So that seed that I plant can go out and create new life of itself. You could not have picked a better title for you. Thank you. It's beautiful. It's just that whole dried tumbleweed is full, full, full of potential. It just needs hold on. the right environment. It needs to hold on. It just needs to hold on and, and get to the right environment. That's it. Hold on. And who knows how long it'll take? That's life. We don't yeah. know. I mean, you guys obviously deal with a lot of, uh, uh, help a lot of people who are dealing with an immense amount of pain. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we can teach them, talk to them, show them. We can help them financially. We can bring them to our homes and show them a new environment. But at the end of the day, it's up to them to believe and hold on to that hope, to believe that it's real and it's true. And that's all we can literally do. Yeah, that's one of the hardest parts of our work, actually, is. <laughs> is when we have to come to that realization as a team and say, look, we can't keep putting more energy in at this point. You know, if they come back to us six months, a year, two years, five years, we're here, right. you know, but there is a certain point where yeah, right. they got to step up or it's not right, going to happen. Right. And um, my book and my steps... Um, really try to, um, you know, I have, I still have friends, uh, God, if we get to this or not, and I'll just say it now, but you know, I have, uh, I have friends in the hood still a best friend who, uh, uh, two years ago, 2020, uh, died twice from fentanyl came back to life. I mean, he, but he, he died during COVID where no one can see him. No. So he doesn't have that, you know, I mean, it was terrible. And then I had, uh, within this last year, actually six months ago, uh, a, a kid I grew up with uh, since I was 13 uh, died of fentanyl. Um, you know, so I wanted to write a book that my boy in the hood can read, and a lady like Diane and Stacy could read as well. From no matter where you're from, it doesn't matter. You could read this book, understand it, and these eight steps. I firmly believe um, if you apply them with intent, um, from the average person to the millionaire who wants to just restructure its entire life. It, it's a real simple way of doing it. Um, but again, it's the road less travel. So that's a great segue. Uh, and I know this will probably be difficult to summarize the four steps that Stacy and I highlighted for our conversation today. But can you tell us a bit about how one does create a new foundation for the future and identify and destroy toxic life patterns? Well, that's the hardest part. Because um, steps one, two, and three are just the basics of kind of letting you adjust to a new form of living, a new form of waking up, just a routine. That's all it is. Number four, that's the hardest part because that's when you really have to start looking into what your foundation is made of. Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your family? Who are these people around you that you hang out with every day? What's the creation of your thoughts? What are the influences around you that create this foundation that influence your thoughts? And to create a new foundation your future can live on is literally the only way 
that the future you're envisioning can lack. Because for example, anybody, I mean, especially today with social media and the 15 minutes of fame and so on and so forth, I can make a video tomorrow and who knows, it'll go viral. And I'll all of a sudden be the attention of the world. And who knows, a celebrity will be tweeting me and I'll get messages and that'll be great. And I'll ride that wave. And now I'm living this future that I envision with a foundation I never changed, with a support system underneath me that won't be able to sustain me when I have to go down this new journey, this new path, this new life that I always wanted. So that really requires you checking yourself and checking everybody around you. Could I be happy with constant negative people all around me every day draining my happiness because they're miserable in their lives and they can't see anybody else happy in their lives? So therefore, they're my friends. I grew up with them. They're my family. I know them since I was a child and I'm obligated to have them around because of blood or relationship, but they're keeping me from creating this happiness that I want. You know, you literally have to make the toughest choice of your life, mm-hmm. cutting those people off cutting that pattern off, cutting, just getting it all, starting fresh, move. We have talked about how hard it can be, but how necessary. Sometimes you have to choose to love people from a distance until you get that foundation solid, because if you're going to build a house, you better have a solid foundation. That's it. I mean, it's no, no simpler than that. Like start with the easy stuff. What is it? What's happening around you that's causing you sadness? What's happening around you that's causing you to be stagnant? And then you identify those. Fantastic. That's going to require a lot of learning. It's going to require a lot of uncomfortable environments that you're not used to. Meaning like me, I grew up in the hood. I never thought I'd be comfortable about a, you know, around a scene of white people, but I needed to be exposed to that, to know what that lifestyle is, to understand what that was, what that could, could be like for me if I ever chose to adopt these kind of things to create a different life, um, exposure, constant exposure. So when you create this foundation, well, the next step is, okay, so now you moved out of your house or now you got the job that you wanted because you went ahead and envisioned that future. You have this hope that you get that job and then you strategize, how am I going to get that job? And then boom, you got the interview, you got the job, but hey, guess what? You're still having to combat the reality of where you live. You have a one good thing going on over here, one bad thing going on over there. Next plan is getting out of that environment, creating this new foundation. Fantastic. Now you're away from the things that you in your mind believed were causing you to not succeed, not be happy, not get where you want to get to. And what most everybody fails to understand is that when you do that, then you have to, that the hardest fun really comes. It's that fight with you. It's that person, the mirror, the waking up. It's all the things that that old environment created, who that person became, that you have to now start, like I said, search and destroy toxic patterns of living. So then that's when you have to identify, fine, I'm out of the house. And why am I so negative still? Why do I ever think I'm going to be happy? Why will I never find love? Why will I never be able to get that promotion? Why am I not good enough for all that? That's you. That's no one else but you. So now you have to start searching those, figuring them out. What are they? Don't be afraid of them. They're never going to go away. They're there. So might as well start talking to them and figuring those out. And then the next one is establish those boundaries. So you found out what it is that triggers you. You found out what makes you sad. You found out 
you know, you've tried to create a new foundation and now you're finding out that away from the foundation, I still have these tendencies that are just screwing me all up. I drink too much. I smoke too much. I party too much. I blow my money. I do all these things, even though I'm not there anymore. Fantastic. What's causing me to do these things now? If you don't create boundaries for yourself, people around you will never know what lines not to cross. Then those boundaries will be guardrails for you to kind of know, here's my code of ethics. Here are the things that I know I'll never do. I'll never say. I'll never. And okay, never is a good way to go about it. But realistically, you're going to mess up. We're not perfect. Things happen. But knowing you created those boundaries at least lets you know, oh, I crossed it. Let me go back into an area that's helped me and maintained me uh, this far. So I call this, but it, you just reminded me when you were talking about the support system, when we asked Nancy Swoyer, in, a, in the podcast, as an 84-year-old woman, when did she feel the most powerful? Her answer was in community with other people. You know, like having those support people in her life is what, how she knows she has power and she can keep going forward. And as we talked about, you and your mom lived in a homeless shelter in Gloucester where we worked. And we also share a very special and cherished relationship with both Nancy Schwary and Rosemary Hutton, as you do. And the story that Nancy shared and you wrote about in the book was transformative in your life. So how did that happen? How was a Latino teenager from the hood able to connect with two yeah. older white women? Uh, well, let happen? me tell you, first, it wasn't from no act of my own. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I was as guarded as a knight in shining armor. I was not letting anyone in. I was like, get away. I don't know you. You're white and you live in this like beautiful place. And like you got all these workers and you're like the boss and people are scared of you. And like you're taking us because we're homeless. So we're like so vulnerable. And here you come. Come white lady. Come to save the day. Oh, my God. Nope. Not going to happen. So it's constant signs of a little bit of love. Hey, how's it going? But, but tough love. You know, Nancy has this ability, obviously you guys know, of reading people's pain. They know, she knows automatically if she has to do the tough Nancy with you, or if she has to do the love Nancy with you, or the hug Nancy with you, or the come and she just knows. It's like, I don't know what is a gift of hers. And that's about calling on your gifts, right? Um, she, she knew I was a kid in the hood. There is no structure in the hood. I think that's pretty understandable. And if there is structure, it's not usually used for good things. So that structure that she knew I needed was a routine. And she created the Wellspring House to do that. But it's just constant. Hey, Carlos, how you doing? Hey, Carlos, this and that. Hey, Carlos, how's school? She, she went with me to see Joe Sullivan. She was there, you know, expecting me to be home at 610. Um, she showed me parts of the home the garden. She invited other people in. We had Thanksgiving lobster fest. I mean, literally, she, she just welcomed me in and us in as if we were literally a part of her family. So I saw that and I'm like, well, who am I to keep on putting a guard up? Let me, let me interact. Let me engage. Let me try to see what this is about. And the more I did, the more we talked and the more I talked to other people like Rachel McElroy and with Rosemary here and there when she'd come down and other workers. So Nancy showed me in the best way possible how human interaction is outside of race, background, culture, all that. This is what a human who cares does for another human who cares. And so when she 
gave me things and invited me to places for nothing in return. It took me a while to digest, to like make sense of what's your angle, lady? What, what is it that you want from me? And she never asked for a thing in return. So when she invited me to join her and the heroes among us to see the cell, I literally felt like the least deserving human being on earth. So I, 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 I denied her. I said, no, I'm, I'm good. There's got to be other people out there besides me. And uh, she said, no, I'm asking you. And can you describe for our listeners what that was? What oh, she invited okay. so you to? Sit down, guys, because this is like one of those once in a lifetime things that can only happen to <laughs> someone like me, I guess. Um, that's why I had to write a book, because these experiences are just unheard of. So here I'm homeless, 16 years old, um, wearing like size 32 khaki pants, okay? Orange Doc Martens and a double XL shirt. I'm like gangster's paradise, okay? So this is 99, okay? <laughs> so I- I'm, I'm like the last person in the world I would imagine she'd be caught dead wanting to invite. So she gets a nomination from the Boston Celtics. They do this yearly thing where they nominate a hero among us in the community, the whole state of Massachusetts. I even think they do New England, just anybody who's had an impact on their community. She gets two front uh, uh, half court seats, row B tickets to the Boston Celtics, Indiana Pacers game where Larry Bird had just become the coach of the Indiana Pacers and Reggie Miller's captain. And then we have our team, right? But it gets better. Not just that, which is great in itself. I mean, that right there would have sold the deal. They pick you up in a limousine, drive you from Gloucester all the way up to Boston. And then they don't, it's not just parking here, go inside the, you know, the Boston garden. No, no, no. We're going to go underground parking. We're going to park in. The, then we're going to walk you up to the executive corridors. And we're going to show you all of the trophies, all of the memorabilia, where the, where the manager, the owner, where they all sit. And then we're going to escort you from there right backstage all the way to the front. So I was like overwhelmed to the maximum. Okay. I was just blown away, but trying to keep my composure as best as I could. And here's this. 16-year-old kid, and at the time, this 60-year-old lady, Puerto Rican, hood kid, white lady from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Former nun, former nun. mind you. Former, former nun. nun who is a, a, a lesbian at this time, if that's, you know, the right term to say. But, you know, she, she, she just, she was not in any shape or form. We were like hamburgers and a hot dog. I mean, we were not supposed to be together in that building, Okay. So here we are walking down and she sits Roby and we're watching the game. And then the halftime show comes up. The halftime comes up where they do the nominations and stuff. And uh, they you know, name Nancy Sawyer from the Wellspring House and give the big announcement. And here I'm just chilling. I'm sitting down. Please. This is enough for me. I'm good. So Larry Bird shows up. The owner of the, um, of the Celtics Red. I forgot his name, but he was there. Everybody was there. The captains. And they nominate her. And then she points at me and says, you get over here. And I'm like, no, Nancy, we're in a full stadium. Okay. We're in the Boston garden. (laughs) So everybody and their mother's looking at me. I'm not going. And then she's like, come here. I'm like, all right. I mean, you got it. YOLO, right? You only live once. So I walked up. I shook Larry Bird. I'm Reggie Miller, the captain of the Celtics at the time. I had no idea who he was. I think it was Antoine Walker and someone else. And, um, And that was it. And then we get back home. That was... Nancy being nominated for a nomination that 
very few people get of like, you know, once a year and only 22 people have gotten it or 22 organizations have gotten it since then till now. So she's in a very exclusive class and she can invite anybody that has helped her create what she Rosemary to say the least anyone. And she invited one of her residents. That was life changing. I mean, life changing period. I didn't deserve it. And when I saw what she did and how, and then I was like, why don't I deserve it? And, and what she picked me, um, this is a dream. This is something that a kid in Lowell, Massachusetts would have never in a billion. There's to this day, I have friends in Lowell that have never been to the Boston Garden. To this day, I have friends in Lowell that have probably never left Lowell. Okay. So for, for me to do that, what I envisioned was possible became real. I said, wait a minute, there's a chance I could live a life like this. Hello, I'm living it now. Somebody did that for me. So she planted that seed and boy, did it sprout. Yeah, I'm surprised that you didn't hijack the limo and like make sure dude, it, went, it rolled. Dude. Low on the way if home. there was a way <laughs> for me to call people, I would have absolutely test. called everybody in Lowell. But we had a payphone in the Wellspring house. That's all we had to and call. You, <laughs> you know, Carlos, you said, uh, you know, initially you were really guarded and you're like, what's her angle? What's her angle? And the thing about Nancy is her angle is your greatness. You know, that's it. And, and that's what it's all about. So we're running on, running out of time, unfortunately. So Diana Million wants to check in with you a little bit about your other resources besides your book. Yeah. So in addition to your book, you've created a dynamic website. You've got resources, personalized videos. You've got live calls. You've got access to coaching. Mm-hmm. So tell us some more about these resources and how they may help someone on their journey to greatness. Well, I tried to get into, obviously, modern times, right? Becoming social media influencer influencer. And that was my path before I wrote the book. I wanted to create a foundation. What foundation can people go visit, see, learn, understand, relate to um, now that the book is out? So I had to do what any social media influencer does. I had to learn how to record myself. I had to learn how to create topics. I had to learn and touch into what is my pain and maybe hope that other people can relate into that pain. So on my Facebook and on my Instagram, um, which is CJ Ricard, you can go to obviously Facebook type CJ Ricard, you'll find me um, or I am Carlos Ricard. Instagram is CJ Ricard as well. On my website, carlosricard.com, you could find my resurrection plan. You could find my motivational videos. I've tried to do a lot of stuff to try to touch the nerve of people, even one about alcoholism, which is huge. If you go to my website, carlosricard.com, you'll be able to see those videos. You'll also be able to go and read a little my book introduction. I give it so people can read and get an intro as to why I wrote the book, who I am. Also, the eight steps. You can just learn a little more about me, what I do. Obviously, I'm constantly looking to book for speeches. I'm constantly looking to do podcasts. I'm constantly looking to help other people. I'm working with a molecular biologist from South Africa to try to intertwine the science behind the resurrection plant. So the scientific aspect with the social uh, aspect of it, and how is that going to help you relate to something in order for you to deal with what you have to deal with, endure the pain, and then obviously become the person that you're supposed to be, which is take your pain, take your pain and turn it into greatness. So inspiring. Thank you. So inspiring. Completely. Thank and you. so many tangible things to go away with. So I, I can't wait to get further into the book. Carlos, we just cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and your wisdom with us here at Personal Power for the Common Good. 
Are there any final words or thoughts you want to share with us and with our listeners? Yes. At the end of the day, guys, it's literally all about making that choice. Make the choice. If you're dealing with something, if you're feeling a certain kind of way, if life is just not working out the way that you want to, it's likely the hardest choice you're going to make, but do it. And the minute you make that choice, be determined that you are not alone on this journey. There are people like Nancy. There are people across your entire life. Those little tidbits of advice that someone gave you, that little bit of hope, people like Stacy, people like Diane, there's so many resources out there to tap into that'll let you get to that next day and the next day. And by the time you know it, three months, six months, you turn around and your life, even if it's a little bit improved, it's improved because life is three steps forward, two steps back. But don't forget, you gained one step and that's all that matters. Great, great. You're welcome, ladies. Thank Thank you so much, Carlos. Well, thanks for tuning in to learn about Carlos's inspirational story or the <laughs> preaching weekend, which I will say hallelujah yes, yes. and amen. Yeah. Glad you're out there. And for our listeners in general, we'll hope you're finding value here. You can find us on all the streaming outlets and on our website, personalpowercommongood.com, where you'll find past episodes and helpful worksheets about reclaiming your power within in order to be a more positive force in the world. I'm Stacey Randall-Shaheen. And I'm Diane Amelia-Reed. And I'm Carlos Ricard. We appreciate you. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. We look forward to our ongoing and ever-evolving conversation on personal power for the common good. Change your life, change the world.